uh, this Advent season, this Christmas season together. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. If you did not bring your Bible with you today, you can do so next week. Uh, But in the meantime, there's a blue Bible in the seat pocket in front of you. And I would love for you to find Isaiah chapter 2 on page 1063 uh, in that blue Bible that we have provided for you. If you brought your own and you're wondering where Isaiah is, it's about right there. Okay? So about halfway, uh, find, uh, uh, you'll find Isaiah there, uh, and we'll be there in, in just a moment. Uh, we're beginning this new series, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, and I hope that as you have come into worship, you've experienced our campus and seen all the different decorations, you've thought to yourself at least once, wow, this church really likes Christmas. I, I, I hope you have had that thought. If you haven't, come back next week. Give us another chance because we're going to be doing that each and every week. We want you uh, to enjoy uh, the Christmas season. And part of the, the idea behind this series is we want you to embrace the joy of Christmas, which is why when you came in today, you may have heard Frosty the Snowman or It's a Most Wonderful Time of Year or, or who knows what other Christmas song. We're, we're going to play all of them because we want to embrace everything that Christmas is. And Christmas is all these things uh, that we love about this season. And and in in a season that sometimes we get stressed and worried and all sorts of stuff is happening, let's enjoy this great season. And even if you find yourself in a season of life where maybe you're walking through a difficult time, I hope that as you come to worship over these next few weeks, you come on Christmas Eve, you come on Christmas Day, whatever it is, that, however you participate, that this uh, time together will warm your heart and bring a smile uh, to your face. Uh, So we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2 today as we begin this series. What we're going to be talking about in the four weeks leading up to Christmas are four different words that we believe are at the heart of the Christmas story. So there's all this stuff that surrounds Christmas, but in our messages we're going to look at the four things that are at the heart of Christmas. And today we're talking about hope. What does it mean to have hope? What does it mean to have hope in the faith that we have? And what does Christmas have to do uh, with hope? And so I'm going to read you the first five verses uh, of Isaiah chapter 2. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about Isaiah and how he fits into the story and what this, these words mean in relationship to hope. So hear these first. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, A. M-O-Z, so any expectant moms looking for a good biblical name, Amos, A-M-O-Z, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." Now, that's clear as mud to you, right? Like, you totally understood everything that I just read to you, right? Uh, my, my guess is some of you are thinking, okay, well, I don't, I don't know what that's about. Uh, uh, you, you may w- struggle here to think, well, what does this have to do with hope? So let me tell you a little bit about, about Isaiah and the ministry of Isaiah. And, and, and here's what I have to do in order to do that. 
I'm going to have to give you a little bit of history, okay? Now, I know that's exciting to about three of you in here. So, for those three, this is your day. For everyone else, I'm sorry, okay? You're, you may have to learn something today. I apologize for that. On the back of your bulletin is some space if you want to write anything down, and I will try to go as, as quickly as I can so this is as pain-free as, as possible. So, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the entire history of the Bible, and we're going to get out of here on time, Okay? So, here we go. The Bible, uh, within the Scriptures, there are three great movements in the Scriptures. And the first one is actually captured within the first three chapters of the Bible. So, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3. It's a short section, but that's the first great movement of the Bible. And in this first movement, there is a pattern that is established that we will see repeated over and over again as we move throughout the Scriptures. So, many of you know that Genesis 1 begins with in the beginning and God creating the world, God breathing life into the world. And in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, those are three verses that you should know. You should write that down, maybe look those up later. You cannot underestimate the importance of those three verses because in those first three verses of chapter 1, God gives to humanity a special commission. Verse 26 tells us that we're different from the rest of creation, that we have been created in the image of God, which means that there is something of God, there is something of God's character, of God's heart that He places within humanity. It's what makes us special and set apart for all creation. But this gift that God has given us of being created in His image, what we find in the following verses is that also with that comes this commission, this charge, this calling as people who have been made in the image of God to bear that image for this good creation that God has brought into being. Our task is to shepherd and manage and care and nurture for God's world in such a way that the goodness of this original creation, that it would be sustained and nurtured and grow. And that's a pretty good gig, but as you know, if you've gotten to chapter 3, which most of you have gotten that far, at least in the Bible, if you've gotten to chapter 3, you know that things don't go very well. Because what humanity does is they believe the best about themselves and the worst about God, and they rebel against God. And this rebellion against God leads to exile. It leads to Adam and Eve being sent forth from the garden. They must leave the, the perfect garden that God has created for them. And as we will see happening over and over again throughout the biblical story, and as you and I, we, we experience in our own lives as well, whenever we find ourselves rebelling against God, the consequences of that rebellion is not just something that we bear, but rather the consequences are, are, they reverberate throughout all creation. And so what we find in the very first movement of the Scriptures is not only are we as, as, as human beings sent into exile, but in some ways the creation that God in the very beginning described as good, it's, it's fractured, it's broken, because humanity has not lived into its original commission. So if you keep reading in Genesis, you get to a couple of really weird and crazy chapters until you get to chapter 12 when the second great movement of the scriptures begin, when God comes to a man who we will come to know as Abraham and he establishes a covenant with Abraham. 
And the covenant is essentially a reformat of the original commission that God had given to Adam and Eve in the same way that Adam and Eve were meant to reflect God's character and God's heart to all of creation. So this covenant that God establishes with Abraham and with the Israelite people, it's about this people of God reflecting God's heart and God's character to all the world. Remember the words of Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And here's what you're going to do with that blessing. You're going to bless the entire world. So things go pretty well for this family for a few generations until we get to the great-grandchildren of Abraham. There's 12 of them. There's one brother that nobody likes. And so they send him into slavery. That's Joseph. Several generations later, all of the Israelites are living in slavery. That brings us to the second book of the Bible, which some of you have read, but most of you have seen the movie. Moses comes and he leads the people out of bondage in Egypt. This is the exodus. This is God delivering them from the bondage of slavery. Moses takes them up to the the brink of the promised land. At his death, Joshua takes over, leads them into the land of God's promise, and several generations later, a kingdom is established. A kingdom that will be ruled eventually by the greatest king of Israel, who also happens to have the greatest name of all time, King David, who is, the, again, the greatest king of Israel. Uh, and, and part of what David does so well in his kingship is he reflects Yahweh. He reflects God for the people. He leads them as God uh, would want them to be led. And and again, the kingdom flourishes and grows for for several generations, but because of poor leadership and and because of Israel's sin, this, this kingdom, this great and powerful and mighty kingdom of David eventually splits between a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and this divide between the kingdoms, it weakens them in relationship to their neighbors. And so in the uh, early 8th century, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. Uh, The the southern kingdom, they survive the threat of the Assyrians, but they don't survive several generations later when the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom. 586 BC, Jerusalem, the temple that is there is destroyed by the Babylonians. And this great kingdom The kingdom of David, this vast empire that was the kingdom of Israel, by the time we get to the early 6th century BC, it's gone. And all of God's people are sent into exile. They are sent out of the land of God's promise, this great covenant, this movement that God had established to to bless the people so that they may bless others. It It had fallen apart again because of humanity's rebellion, which had led to exile. Babylonians who ruled for a time were conquered by the Persians. The Persians were eventually conquered by the Greeks. They were led by another guy with a great name, Alexander the Great. The Greeks eventually gave way to the Romans. And by the time we get to the time of Jesus, we still, we have Jews who have been able to return to the, to the land of God's promise, but they have not yet had their authority over the land restored. Okay, Wake up your neighbor, all right? So here we are. Here's where Isaiah is in this story. This is, this is really important. Isaiah would have understood his life and his ministry to be located at the time of rebellion, a time when Israel had turned to idolatry, where Israel was not living according to God's law and God's commandment. Part of, or really central to this idea of rebellion, was the idea that Israel was not taking care of one another, 
They weren't taking care of the poor among them, the ones who were in need. They were people who were only looking out for themselves. And even the kings were living in this way. And so instead of reflecting the heart and character of Yahweh, they were simply living selfishly. They were living in rebellion. And so Isaiah, as a prophet, his task, his ministry was about saying, guys, this is where we're heading. We're in the middle of rebellion, and here's what you need to understand. You need to understand what's coming up next. We are going to be exiled from the land of God's promise. And so Isaiah's ministry was about preparing them. Hey, guys, this is what's coming next. But also telling them about this in advance so that they would understand that when it happened, it wasn't God's fault. It's our fault. It's because of our own disobedience and sin. It's because of our own rebellion. Just as the rebellion in the garden led to an exile, so will our rebellion lead to us being exiled from the land of God's promise. But here's what's really hard about being a prophet. Isaiah, again, he understands that he's living at the time of rebellion, and he's trying to help people understand, hey, here's what's coming next. We're going to be in exile. But he's talking to people who still believe they're living in the good old days of the kingdom. He's talking to people who are thinking, Isaiah, calm down, dude. Like, it's okay. No big deal. Everything's great. God loves us. We're mighty. We're strong. We got nothing to worry about. These were people who were living in the good old days of the kingdom, unable to fully understand the scope and the depth of their rebellion. And so they could not imagine the exile that was to come. But this is, this is what prophets do. Prophets are the ones who help us see this is where you're heading. This is the path that you have chosen to be on. This is, this is where this is going to end up. Their task is about helping us see that. So, so imagine it in this way. Imagine you had a friend who came over and said, I have a brand new diet plan. I figured it out. I can't wait for the beginning of the year. I'm going to launch into this. I know it's going to work because I saw it on the internet and it absolutely has to be true. Here is my diet plan. I'm going to eat Twinkies every meal of the day. Morning, noon, night, that's it. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. All I'm going to eat is Twinkies. Now, if you were a good friend, okay, if you were a good friend, and not like a bad friend who'd be like, this would be fun to watch, but like a good friend, <laughs> you would say something like this. You would say, this is not going to end well, right? This is not a good idea. You would want to help them see, this is where this will head. And that's what the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, all the prophets that we find in the Old Testament, that's what they're doing. They're seeking to help people understand we're living in a time of rebellion. And there are going to be consequences for our disobedience. We need to be ready for what is going to come next because of the way in which we have, have lived our lives. And part of the work of the prophet is sharing really, really hard truth. Like the words of a prophet aren't those things that people share in church and everyone leaves and goes, gosh, I feel so good. Thank you for that. No, they were hard and difficult truths. It was language that was really, really hard to share with others. And you find this all throughout the prophets, but also woven within their stories and, and words of judgment and destruction and suffering that was to come woven within each of the prophets' message was also this glimmer of hope. 
that on the other side of this exile, that God would again begin a new movement, that God would return to God's people, and God would invite them back into the land of God's promise, and, and God would again reestablish a new kingdom a new kingdom of people who were committed to the, to the ways of God, that God would take the law and He would impress it upon their hearts, that God would send someone to bring us back, to restore us, to once again give us a sense of hope. And so when we get to the time of Jesus, this is, this is the expectation, this is the longing, this is the anticipation, God, please do something for us. And as many of you know, Jesus came to begin this third movement. And even though you know that, you also know that those who led Israel at the time were the ones who rejected Jesus, who misunderstood His message, who did not really get what this kingdom was that He was going to be bringing into the world. And because they rejected Jesus, they eventually colluded with the Romans in order to crucify Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, some even wondered, well, why did that happen? Like, that doesn't make sense. Why, why did Israel, the covenant people, why, why did the leadership of this, uh, of this people reject them? And, and here's in one word why. Because the people at the time understood the next act to be a one-act play. And for it to only be about God coming in conquest. That's what the Babylonians had done. And that's what the Persians had done. And that's what the Greeks had done. And that's what the Romans had done. They'd all come in with a mighty army. And in a violent revolution, they had taken control. And so they, they expected that God would do the same thing. God would come as a mighty warrior. And God would lead a, a, a political and a social revolution. And the kingdom of David would be finally and fully restored. But if you know Jesus, you know that this wasn't what Jesus was about. This wasn't the way of Jesus. He was born in the town of David, which was Bethlehem, the, the, the city of David, but he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a barn. Uh, he, he didn't grow up among the elite. He lived in Nazareth among the poor. When he began his ministry, he didn't come to the, to the center of, of, of their life. He didn't come to Jerusalem. He spent his time out on the outskirts in the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee in the northern portion of, of Israel. He, he ministered and cared for the poor. He healed the, the sick and the lame. And, and when he eventually came to Jerusalem, he was welcomed as a, as a king, but he didn't come on a mighty stallion. He entered uh, on a very humble cult. And because Jesus and his message and the kingdom that he talked about was not what people expected, they rejected him and eventually crucified him, not knowing that in crucifying Jesus, they were actually beginning the third movement of the scriptures. Because in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was establishing a new covenant. And in this new covenant, God was inviting us into a brand new exodus, an exodus that wasn't from a particular place, but an exodus that was from the bondage 
of suffering and sin and death and that this resurrection moment was God's final affirmation that in Jesus, a brand new kingdom was coming into the world. A kingdom that wasn't like any other kingdom that they had ever seen before. A kingdom that did not come by force or by coercion, but a kingdom that captured the human heart by the scope of God's sacrificial love. Now, there's actually one more component of this third movement, and this is the most misunderstood portion of the Christian faith. Now, this is the part that we get wrong all the time. There is a final movement that we see uh, in the Scriptures, a final component of the third movement that is often thought of as Jesus returning to destroy the world. But that's actually not how the Scriptures speak of it. What the Scriptures say is that when Jesus comes again, it will not be to destroy this world that God has brought into being, but rather to, we're going to skip that part, renew the world that God has brought into being. In other words, The scope and the trajectory of the Bible is that where human beings rebelled and caused a rift and fracture in all of creation, God all throughout the story has been working through us to renew and restore the world to how it was originally intended to be. Now, what does that look like? What will it look like when Jesus comes back and He restores the world? We sort of know that's part of the story, but what does it, it look like? Well, listen again to what Isaiah chapter 2 says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be established, it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. People will come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, where He will teach us His ways. So that we may walk in his paths, the law, the, the new way of life will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then listen to this. This is the part that scares most of us. But listen, listen to the good news that is here. He will judge, which most of us think, oh no, this is going to be bad. But what does he do? He will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. In other words, God will arbitrate in the conflicts that we have lived out in our world. And God, by His power and grace and love, God will bring peace and He will make those things right. Not a compromise that says, well, well, I guess we'll get along now, but a restoration of relationships among all of us. And so what will we do in response to this judgment and this restoration? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So all throughout this story, there has been a story of human conflict. There's been a story of peoples conquering other peoples. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, uh, the Romans, and all the other peoples before then. And that story continues today. We see it again. The violence, the destruction, the fighting, the quarreling among people. But at the renewal of all things, 
anything that we have fashioned and created to defend ourselves against one another, anything that we have fashioned or created as a way of fighting against one another, we won't need those anymore. And in fact, what we will do is we will take those things that we have created for destruction and we will recreate them into things that are instead about cultivating and nurturing life. Plowshares. Plowshares and, and pruning hooks, which are, which are about what? They're about tending the garden. The good and beautiful world that God brought into being. We will no longer be those who are destroying one another and destroying the world. We will be who we were always meant to be, the people who are caring and creating and shepherding and nurturing this good and beautiful world that God has declared is good. This is the end of the story, the renewal and the restoration of all things. And this is where hope is. Now, let me talk about why I think we sometimes wrestle with this word hope. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with it is because the way that we use the word hope in our own common language is not the way that the Scriptures talk about hope. You see, when we talk about hope, the word that you could kind of substitute for most of, for our meaning in most instances is the word wish. What we describe as our hope is really what we wish will happen. This is what, hey, if everything goes the way that I want it to, this is what I would really like to have happen. I hope that this happens. And oftentimes when we use the word hope, this is what's so amazing. We don't really expect that what we hope will happen will actually happen. And in fact, if it were to happen, we would be just as surprised as anyone else because we really don't see it as something that is a sure thing, something that's going to happen. Rather, it's just a, oh, wow, wouldn't this be great if this were to come to pass? I really hope that that would be true. That's how we often use the word hope. And just in case you don't believe me, let me give you one example that I bet some of, this is a sentence that some of you probably said, maybe shared with a friend a few months ago, that is a perfect illustration of the way in which we often use hope. I bet some of you in recent months said something like this, I hope the Cowboys are good this year. And if you shared that with your friend, you probably did it while laughing, and your friend laughed with you. They didn't take you seriously because they knew you weren't being serious. It was just a wish. It was just a desire. It was just a, oh, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? And some of you are not sports fans, you, but, but you know, you know what I'm talking about here because now looking at the Cowboys at 10 and 1 after Thanksgiving, some of you who said this months ago, you have been so tempted to gloat. But you know you can't because you're just as shocked as everyone else that they're actually good this year. It's an incredible surprise. And, and while we celebrate it, none of us expected it to come to pass. And that is not how the Bible talks about hope. Hope is not, according to the Scriptures, some against all odds gamble. It's not a, oh, wow, wouldn't it be great if maybe, just maybe, God actually cared about us? Oh, wow, wouldn't this just be awesome if, if somehow something could happen that could intervene in this world that we all can see is so broken and in pain and in need of renewal and restoration? Oh, geez, wouldn't that be great? 
It's not some far-fetched wish that we have for what the future might be. It is instead a deep conviction. A deep conviction. This is how Paul talks about hope. Paul says that hope is the anchor for the soul. It's, it's that thing that we drop into the deep waters. And in dropping it into the deep waters, it is that thing that keeps us afloat when the waves pick up energy and the storms come in. And we find ourselves at a season of life where we, we, we feel like the darkness is coming and we can't really see what light may be left in our lives. It's the anchor that we hold to, that we cling to when we stand at the graveside. Or we are there in the hospital room and we hear those words we never thought we would hear. Or when we lose that job or that marriage that was an anchor for us is, is for some reason fractures. When that child that we have loved and cared for begins to wander and there's there's nothing we can do. When we're living, living through a dark season and, and we don't know how this is going to turn out, but it just looks like bad stuff is coming. It's that thing that we cling to, that, that certain conviction that the God who kept His promise and in Jesus came at Christmas is the same God that we can trust to keep His promise when He says that Jesus will come again. And when He comes, He will renew all things. And He will make the world right again. And He'll wipe away the tears and He'll bind up the wounds and those things that we thought could never be healed, somehow by His grace, healing will come. And restoration will come. And life will again come from the graveyard, from the places of sin and suffering and death. Here, here's how I heard it a few months ago uh, from another pastor. We don't have hope for the future. We actually have hope from the future. God in His grace has actually shown you the end of the story. And in showing you the final act of the story and showing you where all this is heading, it's a way of God whispering to you, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Whatever it is you walk through in life, it's going, it's going to be okay. Which means that part of the message of Christmas, among all the other things that Christmas is about, which we want you to embrace and enjoy and love, part of what is at the heart of Christmas is the simple message that says, we can trust God. We can trust God. Jesus came at Christmas to declare to the world, you can trust God. You can trust God. You can trust God with your hopes. You can trust God with your dreams. You can trust God with your hurts. You can trust God with your suffering. You can, you can trust God with that thing you don't want to let go. You can trust God in each and every season of your life. You can, you can trust God because hope is not just some far-fetched gamble or wish. Hope 
is an anchor for the soul. So when you hear that word this Christmas, I want you to hear it in a different way. Not as something that, oh gosh, wouldn't that be great if it was true, but rather as people who have caught a glimpse of what the end of the story is and who because they have seen that know that everything, everything's going to be okay. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this great and wonderful time of the year. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that is Christmas for us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as a church family, but also, Lord, for all the gatherings that we will have in the weeks ahead. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart and a a posture to these days that would really savor the, the sacred moments that are ahead. That we would see each and every interaction and each and every chance to to give and serve and all the things that Christmas is about. That we would see these as an honor, Lord, as a gift that you have given to us and a reminder of, of that which is at the heart of the Christmas story. Hope. More than a wish, but a conviction, an anchor. An anchor for our souls. And so, Lord, I pray for those who may be walking through a dark moment in their life, who may be in a season where things are not going well where they, Lord, may be looking for that glimmer of hope, Lord, I I pray that you would give them an increased measure of confidence in the future that you have revealed to us, that we all, Lord, would, would live with a deeper conviction that we can trust you. All these things we pray in Jesus' name.